0: You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. I want to take just a minute a, a prelude to the introduction of the message just to say to you something that I'm very very excited about and something the Lord has impressed me with and I, maybe it's time for me to say it a few weeks ago on the elder retreat we talked about God's vision for this church and I asked the elders to begin to pray about what they believed was God's vision for this church specifically and they asked me, they said, well, what do you believe is God's vision? And I said, well, I think I know, but I don't want to tell you because I want you to pray and I want us to come together and collectively then we'll hear what the Lord's word is about this church. And this morning as we worshiped, and I've been thinking about this this week, and I shared it with uh, someone this morning, I did, and I shared it with one of the elders yesterday afternoon. He he braced me on a trip yesterday and made me do it. And so so I told him, so maybe I just want to share it with you this morning as a word of encouragement to you. What is God doing with this body of believers and what is the Lord's vision for this church? And there's one word, if you read my newsletter article this week, there's one word that stands out in my mind about what God wants to do in this body of believers and it is the word balanced. I believe that the Lord is always in the place of balance. I don't believe that you find the Lord over here at this extreme and I certainly don't believe you find him over here at this extreme. But I think that where you find the Lord Where we honor Him as His people is when we find balance. Amen? So let me say to you, some of the things I've been saying and some of the things the Lord has been teaching me and what I've been preaching for the last several weeks, I know have scared some of you because immediately you're thinking of excesses. You're looking over here at this excess or you're thinking over here at this excess and you're going, is that where James is going? Is that what James is trying to say to us? And I want to say to you, unashamedly and unapologetically and uncategorically, that is not where I'm going. Where God is leading us as a people is a place of balance. It's a holy balance. It's a godly balance. It's a balance that will honor him. You see, over here is an extreme, and and Baptist people are guilty of this in many places. Over here is an extreme where anything that smacks of the supernatural, we run from it. We're afraid of it. And so, And I think because we want to protect God's reputation perhaps, or probably more so because we want to protect our own reputation because we're not willing really to step out and just do what the Lord says. And that's just act like a child and ask because we're afraid that if we ask that we'll not receive what we're asking. And so rather than face that disappointment, rather than face that humiliation and rather than risk God's reputation, we don't ever ask for God to do something supernatural in our midst. And so in most places, and I'll use Baptist because that's my reference. That's where I was saved, and I am one, and I, continue, I intend to continue to be one, and I love being a Baptist. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud of it, all of that kind of stuff. What we normally do in, our, in these circles, and these are the circles that I was trained in from Baylor University and two degrees at Southwestern Seminary, is that we just kind of ignore that. And somebody asks, do you believe in the supernatural? Well, sure, I believe in the supernatural, but then we never practice asking God for the supernatural because we're afraid of our reputation. Because we've seen some extremes over here, and we certainly don't want to be identified with that. And folks, let me tell you, I don't either. I don't want to be a part of a movement. I'm not looking to be a part of a movement. What I want to be is the people of God just doing what God's Word says and letting God do what He wants to in our midst and not being afraid of that. Just don't be afraid of it. If it's from the Father, even if it violates our intellect, even if it violates our tradition, it's good, right? And if we ask the Lord for a miracle and he sovereignly chooses to do so, then should we run from that? Should we be afraid of that? I know what's going through many of your minds. You're saying yes with your mouth, but with your mind and your heart, you're saying, or you're saying, no, we shouldn't be afraid of that. But with your mind and your heart, you're afraid. (laughs) I know that. I've been there. And I'm just praying that we will be a people of balance my prayer and my vision the vision I believe that God has given me for this body of believers is that we become a people that when someone comes and they have a need that in the corporate expression of worship they feel the freedom to come and ask that the people of God pray and that we be willing to pray unashamedly that we be willing to pray believing and trusting not presuming upon God but just in obedience to his word And that they feel that kind of freedom in this place to do that. And I believe that when we reach that point, I believe we are going to see the Father set aside the laws of nature. Sometimes. He will not do it every time. He has never promised to do it every time. But I believe that we will see that happen. And that scares so many of us. But you know what? I'm not afraid of it anymore. I was praying this week. I've been doing a great deal of just seeking the Lord about this whole thing about the time I got discouraged this week was when Nancy called me and told me that the Lord had just worked a miracle and I just hung up the phone and I said Lord forgive me forgive me for my questioning you forgive me for my sitting here in my office beginning to worry about my reputation Lord forgive me for sitting here in my office beginning to worry about being humiliated And I just said, thank you, Father, for all that you've done. I believe, I I may not get to preach this message today. It's ready, by the way. It's right there. But I believe that we as a people are headed for humiliation. Did Did you hear that? I believe that I am headed to be humiliated. I acknowledge that publicly. I have prayed all week long, Lord, I'm ready to receive that. I'm ready to be humiliated. I'm ready to be rejected. I am ready to be ridiculed by my, many of my brothers and sisters in the ministry and fellow Christians at other places who will misunderstand. What I'm saying I mean many of you you know me I've been here eight years almost and you have misunderstood what I've said some of you have I know you yet I've heard about it and so if you who know me misunderstand what I'm saying I know those people who are not even here hearing me say it are going to misunderstand and I know that I will be ridiculed I know that you who stay here with us will be ridiculed probably by some people because we'll be misunderstood But you know what? I'm ready to receive that. I really and truly am. I'm ready to receive that. For the first time in my life, first time in my ministry, I'm ready to receive that. If that is what the Father chooses to do in order to make us into a people of balance. And hear that word. Boy, put that on your refrigerator. Put that word on your refrigerator. Put that word on your mirror. Balance. Balance. That's where the Lord is. You see, like I said, I don't want to be a part of a movement. There's movements going on out there I don't have any desire to be a part of. I don't have any desire for us as a church to be a part of any movement anywhere. I just desire for us to be the people of God here, letting the Lord do what he wants to do. And I know that's risky. And that scares many of you. And I just pray that the Lord will open your hearts to hear what I'm saying. I'm not advocating anything weird. I'm not advocating a sideshow. I'm advocating the people of God just not being afraid of what the Lord wants to do. When he wants to do it. And in what way he desires to do it. I think about, and I thought about Randy a lot this week. Randy is a new believer. Randy, I baptized Randy almost just a little less, probably just a hair over a year ago, probably. Within this past year, Randy and Joyce lost their son. And now Randy has this thing with his heart. Amen. And, and I think, my soul, what a tragedy that the people of God, the body of believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, what a tragedy it would be that if, if we failed, To be willing to pray with this brother. I mean, corporately, not just, oh, I'm going to pray for you, Randy, and then never do it. Or just pray for him when he's in the hospital. You know, that's acceptable in Baptist circles. Well, you can pray for the sick when they're in the hospital, but don't do it in church. How stupid that is. What a tragedy it would be. If here in our very midst, a brother in Christ, if we were not willing to risk humiliation to pray. And ask God. And who cares what the world says? Oh, that church, old don't Baptist Church, they're praying for the sick. Well, praise God, we ought to be. We really ought to be not only just physically sick, emotionally sick, psychologically sick, spiritually sick. We ought to be praying. That's balanced, folks. That's godly. There is nothing strange about that. But so many places, him and others like him, could have this need, and yeah, the church would be praying individually, but never would the church corporate, would they be willing to risk humiliation to come together and just do what Scripture says, just lay hands on the man and pray for him, and just trust God to do what the Lord chooses to do. Boy, I want us to be a people like that. I want us to be a people when someone walks in this place, they're not a member here, they're first-time visitor, they walk in, they sense that spirit in this place, that this is a people that I can tell. This is a people that will care. This is a people that will pray. Nothing weird going on here. Just a people believing their God, that He is who He said He is. That is my vision. I hope it's the Lord's vision. I hope it is not mine. I'm still praying through it. But I believe that's what the Lord wants to do in this place. You know, right off the top of my head, I can't think of a place a denominational church where that is true now I know there is one that exists somewhere that is living in balance like that but I don't know where I'm sure there are some but I just have never seen one and I pray that this church this body of believers become that in balance is it okay? is that okay with you? thank you take your Bible and turn to John 8 I am going to preach John chapter 8 Imagine this, if you will. I'm going to try to do this as painlessly as I can this morning. Imagine this, if you will. A Sunday morning worship service somewhat like this one. The pastor stands after the, the uh, anthems have been sung, the offering has been received, the special has been given as glory to God, and the pastor stands and in his introduction to his message, he begins like this. This week, I was, it was made known to me that a certain individual and this congregation committed a certain sin now if that person does not give 500 dollars into the offering plate at the end of this service then tonight i'm going to tell all i'm going to tell who it is and i'm going to tell what they did i know who you are and i saw what you did (laughs) i know what you did at the end of the service 19 people put $500 in the offering plate and three wrote IOUs to be collected (laughs) next Sunday. (laughs) What that pastor discovered, and I don't know if that's a true story, but I suspect it could be true. What that pastor discovered is that there are a lot of people in the body of Christ that are living with a sense of guilt and condemnation that they live constantly with this sense that the hammer is about to drop. And if they didn't have something specific in their mind that they did that week that they thought he might be talking about them, just this pervading sense of condemnation and of guilt that lived in their heart all of the time made them want to write a $500 check just to cover themselves to make sure that they were not the one that was revealed that night. A lot of folks live that way. I suspect that some of you probably live that way. Let me give you some good news this morning. The Word of God says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The scripture declares it. There is no condemnation. Listen, say that again. Say it with me. There is no condemnation. Now, Paul said it, but Jesus demonstrated it. It's one thing to say something, it's another thing to demonstrate it, right? Paul spoke it, but Jesus demonstrated that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Today I want to preach on the greatest story of grace I think there is in all of the New Testament. It's John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the story of the woman taken in adultery. It is a story that has been attacked through the centuries by so-called scholars, and many of them are modified scholars. There were many that believed that this story didn't even belong in the Bible. It doesn't even belong in the New Testament, they said. Early, early, early in this history of the Christian church, there were those who attacked this story as not being genuine, as not being valid, and not even belonging in the inspired text of the Word of God. Why is that? Well, there are some technical reasons that I do not think are, are compulsive, some technical reasons that I do not agree with, uh, I see their point, but I do not agree with them from a, uh, uh, from a theological perspective or even from a technical uh, language perspective or, or anything else. I don't agree with that, but I think the, the root thing that's going on here is that this story exemplifies grace to the extent that it frightens legalists. You see, grace always scares legalists grace frightens people. And when they read this story in John chapter 8, it is such a story and a demonstration of grace and of mercy that many have said Jesus was light on sin in this story. Therefore, that cannot be valid. It can't be a valid story because Jesus would never be that light upon this woman's sin. And so it's easiest just to deny it and say that it is not valid. Folks, as I read this story, and I've I've studied this story for years and years, I've preached on this passage many, many times through the years, this is Jesus Christ to the core. If there's any story in all of the New Testament that exemplifies the attitude in the heart and the ministry of grace through Jesus Christ, this is a story that says, this is what you'd expect Jesus to say, I think, in this encounter. This is what you would expect Jesus to do. This is not contrary to who Jesus is. This exemplifies the very ministry of mercy and grace in Jesus' life. In the flow of the John's Gospel, we've kind of broken the flow a little bit, In fact, we've even skipped some of it. But in the flow of John's gospel, he's been ministering to crowds and all of a sudden we're brought up short with this encounter with this individual. And it's almost like, you know, the Spirit has been showing how Jesus ministers to the crowd and then all of a sudden he stops us up and he says, now here's this woman. And this is how Jesus ministered to this woman. Verse 2 tells us he was teaching in the temple. And then this woman was brought to him and Jesus Christ ministers to her. I want to read the story and then I'm going to come back. And I want you to open your heart today and let the story live. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses we are commanded to stone such women. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin let among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, the woman where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Look with me. First of all, I want us to look at the accused, the accusers, and the acquittal. Very quickly, The accused. Verses 3 and 4 tell us about this woman. We're not given her name. There's never given a name to this woman in all the scripture. But it tells us what had happened to her. She has been taken in adultery. She's been caught, as a matter of fact. John is very specific. He says she has been caught in the very act Of adultery now the reason that that is so specific there if you understand jewish tradition and you understand jewish law then you'll understand why in the jewish system of things there were three offenses that really required capital punishment the first one was idolatry the second one was murder and the third one was adultery now of the three adultery was the most difficult to prove as you can well understand why. If someone is bowing down and worshiping at an image, then you know they're an idolater. If they've croaked somebody, then you know they're a murderer. But adultery, by its very nature, is the kind of act that is hidden. It is not published. It's not something that is laid open and laid bare, and so it's very difficult to prove. So the Old Testament and the the Jewish tradition had very strict guidelines about someone being accused of this act, and it was that there had to be at least two eyewitnesses. There had to be at least two eyewitnesses to the act itself, the very act itself. In other words, someone could not be condemned for adultery on hearsay. Someone could not be condemned on circumstantial evidence. Well, I saw so-and-so and so-and-so, and they were coming out of the Burger King down, the other, you know, down on so-and-so street, so I suspect this is probably what happened. It couldn't be circumstantial evidence. It couldn't be hearsay. It had to be literally two eyewitnesses. So when these men, these scribes and Pharisees, brought this woman and laid her at the feet of Jesus... They said, she has been taken in adultery. She has been caught in the very act. What they are saying is this. We have eyewitnesses to the act. That's what they're saying. We have seen it. We have seen this. We have witnesses that will testify. And it's interesting to me that in this story, Jesus accepted the woman's guilt. He never questioned it. Jesus accepted it as fact. He took them on their word that they had their eyewitnesses. And the guilt of the woman in the story is never an issue. Never an issue. Here Jesus is. Here is this woman that is accused. She has been taken in the very act of adultery. That means there are at least two eyewitnesses to the very act itself. They lay this woman before Jesus, and Jesus never questions her guilt. She's guilty. She's been caught. She's committed adultery. She has been taken in the very act. If you can imagine that, and I don't want your mind to run too rampant with that, but if you can imagine that, what that must have been like for this woman and what it must have been like for Jesus. And what it must have been like for these scribes and Pharisees who wanted to trap Jesus. She was caught. She was guilty. I want to say to you this morning, every single one of us is just like her, though. Every single one of us, every single man, woman, and child has been caught just like this woman. Your sin may not be her sin. Your sin may not be the same sin, but just as she is guilty, every single one of us is guilty before the living God. Now, Sometimes we think we pull a fast one because our sin is not made public like hers was. Sometimes we think we've pulled one off and we've gotten away with one. But I want to announce to you this morning that there is not one of us here that is not just as guilty as this woman. We have all been caught. Every single one of us are caught in the presence of a holy and righteous God because he knows all and he sees all. The First Baptist Church of Amarillo. How many of you have ever seen the First Baptist Church of Amarillo? It's a beautiful structure. In fact, it was uh, was structured, it was built as a replica of a cathedral in, I think it was Lucerne, Switzerland. I've only been in there once. But it has this massive dome and this big wraparound balconies and beautiful chandeliers, just a gorgeous piece of architecture. But the most interesting thing about the First Baptist Church of Amarillo, if you've ever been there, is that right in the very top I mean, right in the very center of this structure, right at the top, there's a four foot by six foot tile and painted on that tile is a giant eye. There's a big eye, a four foot by six foot eye, right up there. And that eye is looking at you no matter where you go. And you stand under it, it's looking at you You walk over here in this corner, it's looking at you. You walk over in this corner, and it's looking at you. Everywhere you go, it is a stark reminder that somebody is seeing. His eye that searches from one end of the earth to the other end sees all things, and there is not one of us that has pulled anything over on him. We are all, like the woman taken in adultery, caught. We've been caught, just as she was. Found out, guilty. So here she is. This is the accused. She's caught. Notice with me, the accusers. Verse 3, John tells us it is the scribes and the Pharisees are who, her accusers. I'll not belabor the point about who these people were, for most of you know. They were the religious legalists of their day. The scribes copied the law, so they became authorities in the Old Testament law, and the Pharisees were the minute, meticulous keepers of the law. And their lives were encompassed by law. Not God's law, because they had long since left that, but it was encompassed by their law, their traditions that they had built up around the law of Moses. And these accusers, as they bring this woman to Jesus, they have one central goal in mind, and that is to get Jesus Christ. They are out to get him. Because, you see, Jesus did not acknowledge their traditions. Jesus acknowledged the law of Moses, but Jesus did not acknowledge the law of the scribes and the Pharisees, which were traditions that were built up around the law. Jesus said, that's all garbage. All that matters is what God's word says and what your laws say don't mean a hill of beans. And so Jesus would not restrict his life by their laws and by their traditions. Jesus lived his life in the freedom and the joy of a intimate relationship with the father. Jesus did not live his life encompassed by human laws and traditions. And so because of that, Jesus' very life threatened their existence. Jesus' very life threatened the existence of the scribes and the Pharisees for everything they stood for was based upon their laws and their traditions. And so they sought to kill him when he came on the scene. They wanted to set a trap. And this woman was the bait. If you ever gone fishing, you always got to have bait on your hook. You ever run traps? You gotta have bait in your trap. They said we gotta catch this Jesus because we gotta get rid of it. And this woman became convenient bait for their trap. I want to make several observances, okay? About this. First of all, I'm impressed by the fact that in order to have caught this woman in the very act of adultery, they had to have plotted to catch her. That sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, as I said, by very nature of the act, it's not something that you're just going to stumble upon with, wit- with eyewitnesses, with two or more eyewitnesses. And so in order to have taken this woman in the very act, they had to have plotted to do so. The second thing that struck me about this and observation I want to make is that these scribes and Pharisees are not really concerned about upholding the law. They are concerned about getting Jesus. Now, that's an interesting contradiction, isn't it? They are the scribes and the Pharisees who live by the law, but in this situation, they're not really concerned with the law of Moses being upheld. What they're really concerned with is trapping Jesus. And John tells us very clearly that they asked him this question. They brought this woman seeking to trap Jesus. The third observation is this. Someone is conveniently missing in the story. Now, all of you women noticed it. None of you men did. There is someone who is conveniently missing. Where is the man? It takes two to tango. I mean, that's true. If this woman was caught in the act of of adultery, there had to be another part of the equation somewhere, but the man is never mentioned in the story. We are never encountered by the man. And now that is not because in the Jewish system of things, only the women were punished. I mean, granted, in the Jewish system, the women didn't really get a whole lot of of honor and due as far as rights. But even within the Jewish system, not only were women punished for this, but also men were punished. It's interesting this week in the research to come across the penalty for the man taken in adultery in the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the Jews that was built up around the law of Moses. And... They had built this up. It was uh, uh, centuries old by this time and had filled volumes of just minutiae built up around the Ten Commandments. In the Mishnah, it states that a man who is taken in the act of adultery is to be placed knee-deep in animal dung publicly. Two ropes are to be placed around his neck and one end of the rope is to go that way and the other end of the other rope is to go that way and there are to be two men on that rope on each end And at the given signal this man who is standing knee-deep in well i won't say it again but he's standing knee-deep that at the given signal these two on the ends are to begin to pull on the end of their rope with all of their strength and with all of their might until this man is strangled to death and then he is to be dropped in what he is standing in and it is to be done as a public act so you see punishment was not only for the woman But there was severe capital punishment also for the man. So if that's true, where is he in this story? Two or three ideas about where he might be. He escaped. I doubt it. I mean, if they've plotted this thing and they've set this thing up to the extent where they're able to get a couple of eyewitnesses, I doubt very seriously that they're going to let the guy get away. The second suggestion might be they let him go. I mean, he's part of the plan. They set it up where they've agreed that if you will go through with this, if you will cooperate with us, then we will only take the woman because we don't need you and we will let you go free. I think that's probably the case. The third possibility is that he is one of the accusers themselves. The third possibility is that he was one of the very number of scribes and Pharisees. I'm not sure that that's really a plausible possibility. I think they would probably use someone else before one of them would commit this act. But I think it's always possible. But either way, the point is this. The Pharisees and the scribes are caught in their hypocrisy. You see, they're willing to break their own law in order to capture Jesus, and they easily justify that. They have no problem justifying that because for them the means justifies the ends. And folks, that is always true of legalism. Legalism will always find a way around it, won't it? Because nobody can live by that strict kind of human tradition. And so what legalists are all the time doing is they're finding ways to get around their laws. And for them, it was a very easy thing to do to say, well, we'll trap the woman, we'll let the guy go because he's going to help us to trap this guy, Jesus, and we got to get rid of this guy, Jesus, because he's going to destroy our whole system. And so in their mind, the end justified the means. So they bring the woman... And they lay her at the feet of Jesus. And they make this statement. The law of Moses says such a woman must be stoned. What do you say? Now they think they have Jesus in a no-win situation. It's pretty clear. If Jesus says to stone her, then the Romans will be on his back. And the Romans will take care of him for him, Because you see, the Romans were the occupying force in Palestine at this turn. And they allowed no capital punishment to take place without Roman approval. And so if Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher in the Jewish system, said stone her, then he would be guilty of breaking the Roman law and the Romans would take care of him. The second possibility is if he says release her, then they've got him for blasphemy of denying the law of Moses. If Jesus says, well, release her, then he's denied the law of Moses because the law of Moses said the punishment for adultery was death. And so here they are, they're standing around Jesus, they're rubbing their hands, waiting to see how he's going to trap himself. And in verse 6, he does a strange thing. Verse 6, he stoops down and he begins to write in the dirt. Now for years, I said he doodled in the dirt. I don't believe that's what he did anymore. I don't think he doodled in the dirt. I can't imagine Jesus doodling in the dirt. But because it doesn't tell us what he wrote, I just suppose that Jesus was kind of doodling in the dirt. But this week, as I went back and studied this passage, I came to believe that Jesus was not just doodling as he stooped and he wrote with his finger in the dirt. We're not told what he wrote. Wouldn't you like to know? (laughs) One of those those things that, you know, you're going, Lord, why didn't you tell us about this? Well, probably because we don't need to know. It doesn't pertain particularly to us. It pertained to a different group of people, but it would still be kind of curious to know what it was that Jesus wrote in the dirt. We don't know, but we are given a hint in the original language. And stay with me because this gets a little thick for just a moment, but uh, I'll try to make my point very quickly. The word for write in the Greek language is the word grapho, from which we get uh, the derivative of graffiti, grouse. It means to write. This word that is used here in in the text in the original language is a compound word from grapho, the Greek word to write. It's kata grafo has a preposition that's attached onto the front of it. This is the only place in all of the New Testament that it's used. Katagrapho appears here only in John chapter 8 in all of the New Testament. It means to write against or to write down. It can be translated either way. The Old Testament scriptures were originally written in Hebrew, but a group of scholars, some 50 scholars, got together and said we need to translate it into Greek because... Most of the people speak Greek, so they translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. This word is used in the Septuagint in Job chapter 13, verse 26. Let me read it to you very quickly. Job is responding to one of his accusers, you know, his so-called friends and counselors that Job had who were telling him, Job, you've really blown it or you wouldn't be going through all this stuff. And So Job is responding, and he says, for thou dost write bitter things against me now the word that the Septuagint that the scholars who translated the the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek when they translated the Old Testament when they translated Job chapter 13 verse 26 the word that they used was not grapho but it was katagrapho, which means to write against and Job said you are writing bitter things against me now when John Speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit comes to tell us what Jesus did in the dirt that day. He doesn't say Jesus grafo. Jesus wrote. He doesn't say Jesus doodled. He says Jesus kata grafo. He wrote down. He wrote against. Now, what is he writing? We still don't know, do we? But let me speculate a little bit because it says he wrote against. I suspect that as these men came. To accuse this woman, Jesus stooped down when they said, The law says to stoner, what do you say? He began to write their own sins. I suspect that Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, looked into the hearts of these men that were gathered around him, and he began to write their sins, and I suspect he perhaps even wrote their names out beside their sins. They probably haven't noticed yet. They think he's doodling in the dirt. So they press him. They say, what do you say? And when Jesus stands up, Jesus looks at them and he makes this astounding statement. He says, and I think he probably did it like this. You who are without sin, throw the first stone. What's he been doing in the dirt? They look over and Abraham sees his name. What's Jesus written about Abe? Hate, bitterness, revenge, murder. All of these things that are going on in the heart of this man and one by one they look at it and the story John tells us that one by one they drop the stones that they had in their hand to get ready to stone this woman to death and they leave. They walk away. Now, who's been caught They have. Where have they been caught? They've been caught in their deception. They've been caught in their lies. They've been caught in their hypocrisy. Has the woman been caught? Yeah, she's been caught. She's guilty. But they also have been caught. Jesus has looked into the heart and has caught these men in their sin. You see, now get this application, folks. It's easy to condemn someone who commits a sin that is not a problem for you. (laughs) <laughs> it's easy for the scribes and Pharisees to condemn this woman has committed adultery my soul she's committed adultery but in their own heart there are lies, there are murders, there is revenge, there is bitterness there is anger, there is hypocrisy all of this stuff but you see that's no big deal because we haven't committed adultery and so they're nailing her to the wall for her sin that she's been caught in and Jesus says you're caught too I caught you. And if you can say you have no sin, then you throw the first stone. You see, it's easy to condemn someone for a sin that's not a problem for you. It's easy to condemn someone who commits a sin that is not a particular sin that you struggle with. Now remember that. The next time you get ready to throw a stone, and all stones are not made out of rock, are they? They're not, are they? A stone can be a word. A stone can be a cold shoulder. A stone can be just a condescending look. Well, I love so-and-so. Man, I'm glad I'm not like her. That's stoning somebody to death. That's condemnation. And Jesus looked at them and said, She has been caught. She is guilty. But you also have been caught. For you are guilty. I got to go on. Boy, really, do I? The acquittal, verses 10 and 11. Look at what it says. Jesus and the woman are alone. They're left alone. No two people more opposite were ever face to face than Jesus and this woman. The woman who's been caught in sin and Jesus who had no sin. No two people more opposite have ever looked eyeball to eyeball. By this time, the woman knows something extraordinary has taken place. Because she has been waiting to feel the stones begin to bounce off of her body. And she looks up, and there are no accusers. All of them are gone, and it's just she and Jesus. And Jesus looked at her, and oh, I wish I could have heard the tone of his voice. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And with this sense of amazement and awe, She says, none, Lord. None. And then Jesus, with the eyes of compassion, says, neither do I. Neither do I. Go and stop sinning. And that's a literal translation of what Jesus said. Literally, it's translated stop sinning, not go and sin no more. It's go and stop this. Go and stop sinning. Was she guilty? Yes, she's guilty. Red-handed, eyewitnesses. Jesus never argued about her guilt. Was she condemned? No. No. She met grace. She met forgiveness instead. And listen to this. The only one qualified to condemn her wouldn't. (laughs) Isn't that great? There wasn't anybody else in the house that day that was qualified to condemn. And the only one that was qualified wouldn't. He refused to. Instead, she met grace, mercy, mercy, And forgiveness. What a story of hope for those of us that are less than perfect. Three closing applications and then we'll quit. I've already said this, so let me say it again. All of us, like the woman, have been caught and are in need of grace. All of us. All have sinned, fallen short, is the glory of God. Sin separates. Whether it's the sin of physical adultery or adultery in the heart, it still separates whether it's a sin of murder or it's the thought of murder, it still separates. Whether it's a sin of greed or pride or bitterness or whatever it is, it still separates. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have been caught like the woman and are in need of grace. Second, the qualifications to judge is sinlessness. That gets us, doesn't it? The qualification to condemn or to judge is sinlessness. The Pharisees condemned her for her sin while they harbored their own sin of murder and hatred. Let me quickly make a distinction here between condemning and correcting. Do you know what I mean by that? In the New Testament, in the body of Christ, we are commanded by the Scripture to correct one another, are we not? Over and over and over again. I am my brother's keeper within the body of Christ. And so I am commanded, if I see my brother in sin, to do what? To correct him. But how does Paul always say that we are to correct a brother or sister who is caught in a trespass? With love, with brokenness, with humility, we are commanded to be on the lookout for one another, to correct one another. That's not condemnation, though, is it? Correction is for the purpose of restoration. Correction comes From a broken heart. Correction comes out of a heart of love, not to condemn, but to restore one another to fellowship. That's correction, and we are all responsible to do that. But condemnation comes from another source. Condemnation says, I have caught you, you have failed, and I'm going to use it to beat you over the head. That's condemnation. And there is not one of us that is qualified to condemn. Not one of us in the body of Christ is qualified to condemn. And the only one who is qualified said to this woman and says to you today, I will not condemn you. If you are condemned, it is because you condemn yourself. You see, I fully believe because, see, Jesus was not soft on the woman's sin. Jesus didn't just ignore her sin. Did he? He said, I won't condemn you. Now stop it. (laughs) That's about what he said. I'm not going to condemn you, you, but stop it. And the implication is, if you don't stop it, you'll condemn yourself. And she would have. Rather than condemning her, Jesus corrected her. He said, I won't condemn you, but stop. Grace, hope, mercy. You see, in correction, there's hope. In condemnation, there's just judgment. That's all there is. I'll stop here. There's a difference also between conviction and condemnation. Here it is. The Holy Spirit convicts us, doesn't He, of our sin. But when the Holy Spirit convicts, what is He doing? He's driving us to forgiveness, isn't He? When the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, He's driving us to grace. His conviction is for the purpose of restoration, His conviction is for the purpose of forgiveness and of grace and of mercy. But when there is condemnation, that is not from God. Condemnation is never from God. You know where condemnation comes from? It comes from the enemy himself, the liar of all lies, who comes to you and says, You're no good, you're rotten, you've sinned. And, and we all have, we're all caught, we're red handed. And so he comes to you and he says, You've sinned, you've blown it, you're no good, you're not worthwhile. And all of the time that Paul's words ring in our, our, our minds, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We listen to the enemy who says, condemned. And how many of you, how many of us as God's people live our lives under condemnation? When God has said in his word, we're not condemned. And when Jesus has demonstrated with his life, we are not condemned. Rather than listening to the Holy Spirit, we listen to the enemy, the liar of all lies, who says you are condemned. Some of you, This morning, I know who you are. I've counseled you. I've prayed for you and many others of you that I have not had the opportunity to counsel with you and pray for you. You live your life condemned. When Jesus says, I don't condemn you. You've listened to the lie of the enemy for so long. That's all you hear. And so you live in failure and defeat rather than in victory. I don't know where you've come from. It can't be much worse than where I came from. But, folks, I'm not condemned. Glory to God, (laughs) I forgive it. Grace, mercy. Where are your accusers? He's the enemy. He's the only one that accuses. The Holy Spirit draws us to grace. The enemy says, condemned. Now, who are you listening to? What voice do you respond to? The voice of mercy, the voice of grace, the voice of conviction? Are the voice of the liar who just wants to destroy you and says, you're condemned. Jesus said, I don't condemn. I don't condemn. Come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But you have to receive it. You have to receive it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you Oh, Lord, thank you for grace. Look at it. This morning, we're going to offer the invitation. And the invitation is to someone here today who is living in condemnation. you felt the stones of the enemy for so many years. You have bought the lie of the enemy. Maybe even people of... Of God have condemned you, and I don't doubt that for a moment. It may have even been me that did it. I don't doubt that for a moment either. But I want to tell you, Jesus says to you today there is no condemnation. You are not condemned. You don't have to live with that. You just come to Him and hear His word. Neither do I stop sinning, receive grace and mercy. The invitation is to a believer today. A believer today who is living in defeat because you've bought the lives of the enemy. You've listened to the condemner, the accuser. The invitation is to come and just be set free. The invitation today is for someone here who does not know the Lord Jesus as Savior. You are condemned. You are already condemned. You're caught. You're red You're guilty. But the Lord is saying, come and receive mercy and receive grace but you must come in Jesus Christ. And we invite you to come today and receive Jesus Christ and receive mercy. Stand together. Some of you may want to sing. Some of you need to pray. You need to bow your head and pray. Others of you maybe will sing. I don't know. But the invitation is open to come to the throne of grace and receive mercy. Alan, lead us You sing or you pray, you do whatever you need to do, and you come as the Lord leads you.